بسم الله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله السلام عليكم dear viewers dear listeners welcome to another episode of the scholar and the student you are joined as always by your host Muhammad Mustaqim Hassan Rahadun Muhammad Dejaz Habib that's why people call me Moss if you didn't know now you do but yes we are here in Mahalape this is the second episode I'm recording today which is a first for me but our guest today, hailing all the way from the UK, he's our second guest from the UK. The first time we had a guest from the UK, we talked about Harry Potter and Islam, and a lot of people had a lot of things to say about that, not all of them good. And I, I feel that today's episode is going to build off that because the brothers from the UK, they love their controversy. I don't know what it is about the UK, whether it's the weather or the water that they drink, but it is what it is, and we take it, we take it in stride, inshallah. So our guest today, um, his name, okay, you'll see his name in a bit, just to give you a bit of a backdrop. I also found him while prowling on the dark side of the internet, and I might disclose where that is later on during the episode. He is very passionate about boxing, about health, and he has also done a lot of work within the Islamic spheres. And I know this sounds very cryptic right now, but let me just bring him up on your screens, audience, for those of you who are tuning. Brother Ismail Shafi, Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to Botswana, brother. It's a pleasure to be uh, with you. MashaAllah, mashallah. And for those of you who might not know, brother Shafi is not um, that far from home right now that is in Botswana because he was born in Malawi. And interesting fact, we have a lot of people of Malawian origin in Botswana who have now, after all these generations, become Motswana, who have identified themselves as Botswana. But it's interesting that, you know, we come from different places, yet we're so close at the same time. I don't know if that makes sense. But Brother Shafi, welcome to the Scholar and the Student. Thank you for taking your time out to, you know, grace yourself. You know, in our show, it's not the biggest show out there, and yet you still took your precious time out to talk to us. So, Brother Shafi... I know I'm not doing justice in introducing you to the viewers. Why don't you tell them a bit more about yourself so they can have a better picture of what you do? Okay. Uh, it's always hard to kind of... Well, it's not a brag. <laughs> it sounds like you're bragging. Uh, so, uh, I've... You could say I grew up in, in Leicester, in one of the roughest areas uh, when I was growing up. Um, 41 now, so uh, in the 80s, early 80s, it was like the Brooklyn or the Bronx of where I grew up. Uh, it was tough life, you had to survive on the streets, so you either was with them or you were against them. So as a youngster, you, you brought up where it was crime, but to be part of this uh, culture of gangs, uh, to blend in, just to be safe from their evil, you had to be part of it, and that's kind of that's how I grew up. Uh, then came to a period in my life, obviously we all went to madrasa here when we were young, but it was more of a dictatorship style, you know, we were beaten, there was nothing really mm. understood. Uh, you know, you would, get, you would get beats from our parents, and you go to the madrasa and you're getting more beats, you know, mm. so that was the culture yeah. that, alhamdulillah, that stopped here in England now, but in the 80s that was rampant. So. Islam was a really introduced to us what what was it about why we're doing things all right is the salah but why are we we're praying salah so these things were embedded in us so as I got older 16 17 obviously you started to you know you want answers you want more than just the basic what you hear on the Friday khutbah and the, and the Friday Jummah bayans were always in Urdu and, uh, mm. and we could even understand Urdu uh, obviously you could say our first um, tongue is the English, uh, so this is what we um, uh, obviously uh, speak with everybody. Uh, thereafter, you know, seeking knowledge, and the first person actually to introduce me and get me closer to Islam, at that age there were hardly any English-speaking scholars, um, was Sheikh Hamza Yusuf from mm -hmm. America, and uh, I came across uh, one of his um, speeches, sorry, uh, the Dajjal, the New World Order, and it was a, it was a, a video, and and I, I showed my friends and I go, whoa, look at these, look at this, and we were all mesmerized by you know by him. So he was my first introduction to Islam in the sense that you know there's something out there more than what it is. Thereafter, in the, uh, uh, 
skip a few years, you know, you want to become more closer. Then you have, mashallah, you have our Tablighi brothers who would come and knock at your houses and, mashallah, they would introduce you. Uh, so in 2000, I spent four months uh, in Jamaat. Sure. Uh, never spent the 40 days before that. I uh, spent a couple of, like, three days and the five days. Uh, and that's it. That was like a big turn, you know, uh, in terms of my life after the four months as well. So that's... Uh, that, that's that's one part of the journey, and for good, I would say 12 years I was heavily uh, involved in the Tabligi Jabal uh, effort. Uh, thereafter, I wanted to do effort on uh, the non-Muslims, non-Muslim Dawah, and I kind of concentrated on that uh, and uh, raise awareness for Palestine. Uh, and I wanted to do actually I wanted to box as well. I've never I've always had the desire. So I started uh, very late, and I became an amateur boxer as well. Um, so that's kind of a sorry, <laughs> a long introduction. Sorry. Well, I'd say it's very fitting, mashallah. You're a man of many talents, a jack of all trades, dare we say? So, okay, just to clarify for some of the viewers, because not all my viewership or my audience is necessarily Muslim. So you mentioned a few terms there, like. Madrasa, for example. So for those of you who are not familiar with the Muslim community, we have this thing like a Sunday school, but it happens every single day. Uh, every day, well, I don't know about how it was for you in the UK in the 80s, but for me growing up Muslims in the 2000s, like you'd finish school at like, I don't know, one o'clock or something, and then you go have lunch and then immediately you go to Madrasa. All right. And then you learn to to read the Quran, you learn to say a few prayers, you're how to actually pray and all those kinds of things. You know, the very basic elementary sort of knowledge of Islam, shall we say. But just as brother Ismail Shafi just mentioned, it was very, shall I dare and say, backwards, you know, in terms of the corporal punishment and all that kind of stuff. In the UK, this is like legally banned, like you can't do this or otherwise you'll be charged with child abuse and all that kind of stuff. Now in Botswana, I haven't seen it happening. Obviously, I'm 25 years old now. I haven't been to Madrasa in a good couple of years, or almost a decade. Um, but I'm sure it happens in some circles, but it's definitely been toned down as the time has passed. But okay, let's have a little bit of a tangent on this. Corporal punishment. Um, you being born in Africa, although you might not be as connected to the culture as myself, I'm a Motswana, I know that amongst African circles, we're not just talking about Muslims now, but there is still this prevailing sense that corporal punishment is the way. I mean, if you talk to people who are a bit older than me, let's say five years older in their 30s, they'll say, we got punished corporally when we were at school, we got spanked by our parents, and we turned out fine. We're not serial killers, we're not rapists, we're not all those kinds of things. We didn't get mentally handicapped because we got spanked. So why is it wrong to do it with today's children and the following generations? Let's start with that. What is your take on that? I... I personally, unless there's a obviously the justice of crime, I'm I'm talking about. But in terms of, you talk if you're talking on the sense of madrasas being punished in the madrasa, is that what you're trying to uh, address? Well, not not just the okay. The madrasa is like our angle because that's where our kids will be going and so on and so forth. But when it comes to like African culture as a whole, I'm speaking generally. Whether it's in school, for example, or at home, there's still that thing that corporal punishment is acceptable. So what is your stance on that? Should we even be having conversations about that or just leave it as it is? No, I, I think it's, uh, it's especially for children. And you growing up and you hitting your child or, or a student if you're a teacher. And I think it's, it's morally wrong. Uh, the Prophet never raised his hand on any woman or any child. If you're talking about sunnah, sunnah of the beard, sunnah of the thobe, you want to talk about exterior sunnah, so let's implement this sunnah. <laughs> so uh, uh, this is something that was never done by our, our Prophet And if you look, um, uh, I can remember that incident Hazrat Umar bin Khattab when uh, Umar bin Al-Amr ibn Al-As radiallahu anhu, uh, he hit a Coptic Christian. The Coptic Christian actually came to Medina to complain to the Umur al-Mu'mineen that I have been wronged and this is what he done. Hazrat Umar wrote him a letter so told told him to come here, and I need to address something. So imagine, made him come all the way from Egypt, and said, "Look, here's the person. He said this is this true, and he said, yeah, this is this is what happened. I hit him, 
and he gave the other person take your vengeance if you want you know so this is something that psychologically affects a person a child especially when when they're young to be physically hit uh, you don't realize until they get older and there's this fear inside themselves and if a person is hit perpetually um, then there has many psychological effects on this as well on the child as well and and it comes to a point where you can hit the child where it won't make any difference so now you've got in England now uh, I can give the example uh, 30 years ago they would they would hit you now they is obviously they've realized that we can't do this so there's no hitting in any of the madrasas no uh, uh, punishment so now a same child it can become half is without getting hit once whereas before they were hitting you and you're making your harvest so it just shows that we lack the, the true um, skills of how to teach so this is one thing which I think is morally wrong Islamically wrong as well and it's something that should be uh, eradicated from our societies as well absolutely but would you say that now that they've stopped physical punishment they've upgraded to mental punishment with emotional blackmail and cancelling people and all that kind of stuff. I don't think that has dissipated in the slightest and that's just my analysis. Okay. Uh, I'm not too sure about the madrasas now here in UK anyway, but uh, far as I know, they've come a long way, come a long way. Uh, I can remember my nephew, he, he goes to madrasa and he actually enjoys, he, he looks forward to going to madrasa. So things have developed a great deal here. So I, I can't speak for Africa. So that's it. Okay, mashallah. Well, if there are any madrasa students in South Africa or anywhere of these neighboring countries, they may kindly correct me. I was just uh, trying to get Brother Ismail's thoughts on that. But then coming back to his initial opening statements, you also, you also mentioned tabligh, and I've spoken briefly, I've mentioned it in other episodes of this po podcast before. So... Tabligh is basically, I don't know if this is a fair comparison, would you compare them to the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Muslim version of Jehovah's Witnesses? Yeah, that's if, the closest we can, we can give an example to. Uh, it's yeah. that instead of uh, going to non-Muslims, they go within the Muslims. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it's this, um, shall we say it's a group. It wasn't for many years, and still the outlying message is that they don't want to be politically affiliated to any one sect or any one group. But there have been some incidents that have put that statement into question. Um, that being said, there are many good things that we can say about Tablir. And I'll tell you, Brother Ismail, that me being from Botswana, Tablir and by extension, the Deobandi school of thought is the most prevalent in Botswana. Once upon a time, as far as I'm told, in the decade before my birth and stuff like that, it used to be the Berelvi school of thought. I cannot give you any hard evidence for that. It's just stuff that I've been told by my elders. But right now it's the Diobandis who run the show. Every now and again, the Salafis or someone else will kind of rock the boat a little bit. And I think I'm kind of a new problem, new and emerging problem for them in Botswana and maybe South Africa and all these places. But that being said, um, you have been doing or you did engage in the activities of Tablir Jamaat for a good 11 or 12 years, as you mentioned. And then they came a point where you decided that this is no longer for me. So would you like to expand a bit more about that journey? And also, since you've done this work for longer than I have, you've been alive for longer than I have, would you maybe expand a bit more about what exactly Tablir Jamaat was um, formed to do? Like what was their mission in existence? What was their vision? What did they want to achieve in the world? Yeah, so... Uh... Tablighi Jamaat is uh, been around for nearly over a century now. Uh, about so sorry, just less than a century. Um, I think 1926, if I can remember rightly, it was uh, started by uh, the late Maulana Ilyas Khandelvi, who was appointed uh, as a imam. Uh, his father was an imam in Delhi, as well, uh, and he had um, many people from the Newat region would come to work in Delhi and he saw how far from Islam they were, the, the practices were very close to Hinduism. Uh, so he had this burning desire to change them, uh, uh, worry and concern. So uh, the, the, you can read the history of the how it started etc uh, of this group. So the main fundamentals were 
he had was the six points uh, to make your iman stronger, bring the salah in your life, make ilm and dhikr, ikram uh, al-muslimin, ikhlas and da'wah. So these were the six fundamentals that he promoted uh, and the whole group promotes uh, and you build within yourselves and you strive out to build these six qualities and another Muslims. And it's just like a pyramid effect uh, at the end of it. So he has many benefits, um, thousands have benefited. Obviously you go away, you're secluded in the masjid, uh, away from the usual temptations of life uh, and you're listening to hadith, you're, you're advising others and you're, you know, you're in a nice kind of um, routine. So, and it's a good lack of rehab and many people have changed their lives uh, through this uh, effort as well. And uh, it's a non-political movement. Uh, they don't get involved. They don't. Uh, there's no controversies in debating uh, fiki rules because they want to inclusion of everybody. Uh, that's why it's on a global level. Um, so these are just some of the basics of the group. Um, but in terms of uh, uh, the larger picture, it's uh, then then you come to a period in in your life where you think oh, I want to try to do something else. Uh, and this is where an obstacle can happen. And is that basically what led to you kind of um, going away from Tablir in general? Or was it a culmination of factors? Because I'll, I'll, I'll start here with myself. Um, I am almost half of your age, I, if you are really 41. We never, I don't know. I mean, people always lie about their age. I'm not saying that you are a liar, but for security reasons, some people don't like ex exposing their age. But if you are really 41. No, I yeah, am yeah. 41. Okay, yeah. So, okay. I am just uh, a bit more than half of your age. So, uh, what I'm saying is that you're really older than I am. And um, so, myself, you know, I went to secular school and alhamdulillah, Grades were good. Alhamdulillah, there was never a problem with gangs in Botswana, as you know, as you mentioned in the UK in the 80s and all that kind of stuff. Alhamdulillah, we praise God for that. But there were other things. I mean, I was into the usual fitnas, the trials and tests, the tribulations that all teenagers go through. And there came to a, a point in my life when I said that, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to come close to God. I want to come close to Allah. And as I mentioned, that the Tablighis have the biggest reach in Botswana. So obviously, coming close to Allah means getting in deep with the work of Tablighi. And Alhamdulillah, all praise to Allah, I did get in with the work of Tablighi. I did it in my hometown. I went to practically all over Botswana. I've been to places in Botswana that other Botswana have never even heard of, I guess. But that's how extensively, Alhamdulillah, Allah chose me to do Tablighi. I ended up going for four months in uh, Sri Lanka and in India, which is a a tale in of itself because stuff happened in India. Uh, I overstayed. I had to get an exit permit. I didn't know those existed. You know, a permit to leave the country. Uh, I didn't know that there was such a thing as your visa is only valid if you enter through certain points in the country and all these weird regulations that I've never even heard of. Any, it is what it is. I came back home safely. Alhamdulillah, praise to God. So it's not the work that I necessarily have an issue with, although I would say that. I have been evolving in terms of knowledge seeking and all that kind of stuff like yourself and like so many other people will do throughout their life. But I felt with me the ecosystem that was created by Tablir. Yes, you mentioned all these, the six qualities of being good in character, of trying to inculcate good qualities in other Muslims. That is great. And we won't even deny the success rate of Tablir that it's had over all these decades. But I felt that the more deeper I got into it, the more it became like an absolute cult, like you are either with us or against us. And I thought to myself that, listen, this is going to rob me of my identity if I keep going this far, because there are, you know, absolutely stupid things that they would nitpick me for. Like, I think you can see that I grow out my mustache, like it's like out of my lips, but I don't shave it as these Maulvis will tell you to do that. And people actually <laughs> dug into my skin for that. They're like, no, if you shave it off, uh, you'll look more smart and all that kind of stuff. Small things like that to even bigger stuff like, you know, being so adamant of not having photos taken and, and stuff like that. So it was just becoming very cultish. And even until this day, I'm getting messages from people. I had to block them on WhatsApp because they were adamant on 
convincing me that COVID is a conspiracy, a pandemic, and all that kind of stuff. And look, there might be merit to what they're saying, but I don't want to um, basically buy into conspiracy theories wholesale just because it's confirming something, some random belief that these guys have. So this year, there was no tablir activity because it was the year of the pandemic. And we've been kind of distanced from that. And it gave me a lot of time to reflect. And I'm thinking to myself right now where I am that, yes, it's a good um, avenue. And if I had kids, I would say that rather than wasting your time at home on the internet and getting hooked on perhaps pornography or other worse things online, rather you go in tablir and, you know, you learn something as elementary as it is, but something about Islam that you can actually put into practice um, every now and again. So that was me. I felt that the ecosystem couldn't really contain me and it was really not allowing me to live life to my fullest, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, it's true because uh, you, you, you're kind of limited, obviously, in what you can say. You have to stay within the six points, yeah? And obviously their philosophy is, is just within the Muslims you have to preach. Uh, and there's something always I always wanted. I was always fascinated with that one with non-Muslims, which is the real tabligh, if you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, so, and and uh, obviously their philosophy is if we become better just by our character, then we can they will enter into Islam automatically. But the question arises then: then why did the Prophet give that one? Who was he giving da'wah to? He was giving Absolutely. to non-Muslims, you know, and he was the best of character. No doubt there has been incidents where companions have been and people have seen their character and embraced Islam. And we even see that today. But the general rule of thumb is that you would have to go and preach and you have to go and persuade them and etc. So this is something I wanted to get involved in uh, and I kind of moved away. Uh, and... Then, like you said, so then there's a automatically uh, a lack of like, they're pulling you back. Uh, the tabligh, but they go, no, 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 you need to come back, you know. And I go, look, I want to try this, <laughs> and I always, mm. and at the same time, I wanted the box as well. And obviously, because you got to give your two and a half hours, you've got no time <laughs> when you come back from work to go and do boxing training. So, and I can remember the brother came and said, look. You know, you you're gonna do this and you're gonna do that. There's always gonna be something else. But in my back of my head, I, I said, look. You're not going to stop me from boxing. <laughs> I'm going to go and I'm going to give it my shot. And alhamdulillah, I trained for five, trained for five years and uh, I reached an amateur level of boxing. So that was something in my life that I, I, I you know, I've done and I wanted to do. So, um, uh, Marshall, is that is that why they kind of backed off? They're like, no, if we mess with this brother, he's going to knock us out. Is that why the tabligh is like, no, no. <laughs> the right hook afterwards. Yeah, so obviously they, 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 they'll try to persuade you and do this and do that. And, and eventually, obviously, they just give up. But the thing was, even recently, I, I, I still, even now, I've always kept, kept going to the Thursday Ishtima because I like hmm. talk of Iman. You know, you always benefit. And, and, and I'll support them in any way. But like I said, it's not everybody's cup of tea. Uh, and it's not like you're in some mafia. Once you come in, you can't come out. <laughs> you understand? Yeah. Uh, th there's no rule like that. Uh, and as far as my knowledge goes, you know, you do, you pray for all the goodness, all the efforts of Dean that are taking place in different ways. You know, you pray for them. And uh, and I've always been an open thinker when I was young as well. I used to always take benefit from everyone, even from our uh Right in the beginning, we had met, in the beginning we had different groups. Uh, I actually studied Brahmism, you could say, uh, Salafism, and see well, what is all this about, you know. And and I can see there's, for example, each year here, uh, even in UK, we have uh, the Maulid Wars as well. And both, <laughs> yeah. to be fair, they're both doing it for the love of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Yeah, one is saying do it. Because you're going to get closer, and they're saying, "Don't do it," because you're going to be closer by not doing it. So the, 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 the is a, is a fruit is a pointless war, really. You know, if you, mm. you do it, you do it. If you don't do it, you don't do it. You know, don't don't slay each other, don't hate each other, don't uh, you know start criticizing criticizing on a on a character assassination level. So there's many things that we can unite upon instead of constantly bickering and arguing, and look at the greater picture in many things. So that, that's the that's the that's the way I see it. Anyway. Oh, so, when, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can go ahead. 
yeah, even when I was uh, at that time uh, listening to Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, some of the brothers would say, don't listen to him. And they were like, uh, by the way, for the your non-Muslim listeners, he's a reaver who, yeah. who studied Mauritania. Uh, he's one of the most knowledgeable uh, people I know across the amount, amount of subjects he's talked about. Uh, and he's um, from America. And uh, they would like, don't listen to him. You know, you know you're going to get a brainwash. And who is this guy? Is he a scholar? So what? A scholar mm. is only who someone who graduates from a Darul Uloom, from Deobindi Darul you know. So Islam is broad, Islam is wide, Islam is, uh, there's many multiple interpretations and many, many things. We've unfortunately made it like this. <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah. Like you're saying, but, just from your touch, people are trying to dissuade you. Or what's and, but would you, you say, I don't know. Because when I went to Sri Lanka, I've only been to Sri Lanka for the purposes of da'wah. Like yourself, my genealogy, my bloodline passes through India, although not Gujarat like yourself. Um, we are, as they say, British Indians because my dad's family is like originally from Kolkata. So there's an argument to be made that I might be more British than you because, I mean, you if you just look like read the history of Kolkata and like the British presence in Kolkata and how we took on British culture, it's an entire new world. But anyway, getting back to the point, it's amazing that these people would try and warn you away from Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, because if I'm not mistaken, Hamza Yusuf has said positive things about Tabliq Jamaat. And coming back to the Sri Lanka example, when you interact with the people in Tabliq, when you interact with the ulama who have graduated from quote-unquote Deobandi-inspired madrasas, they want to go and then study in Zaituna College, which is run by Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. They want to study Arabic with Ustad Noman Ali Khan. And, you know, in South Africa, I've actually heard this from people in Jamaat. They're like, uh, Noman Ali Khan is a Salafi and he's invented Hadith, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I don't know if he did. It. If he did, it was wrong. But then just because he is not a Deobandi, they don't want to take him on. But in Sri Lanka, it's a different world. Like, even after graduating from the Deobandi Madrasa and going for one year in Jamaat, they would have no issues going to Saudi to study in the Islamic University of Medina just to improve their Arabic. They have no issues going to Mauritania, going to Hamza Yusuf's university, anywhere. So what I was going to say is that do you think this is kind of an Indian thing? Because if it's why is it not present in Sri Lanka then? Why is it that in Malaysia and Indonesia they seem to be more open-minded? Talking obviously about the Tablighi brothers. Do you think this is just inherited cultural baggage? Yeah, definitely. I think um, in, I can speak about UK. Uh, I personally, if somebody told me, what are you? Are you Deobandi? Why are you Bareldi, Salafi? I'd say, bro, I'm a Muslim. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that would be my answer. Uh, I may have grew up in one of these, uh, I call it schools of thought. Yeah, probably I was grew up in a Deobandi school of thought uh, more. But for me, these are just things and what it is is you're kind of nurtured in a way that just stick within our ulama our uh, fraternity if you want to call it that and and the way I see even in UK we've never had a scholar come over from Syria say Senegal Mauritania Egypt uh, all the Islamic world Indonesia there's been Islam there longer than in India mm. uh, if you look at the history of Darulum Deoban, uh, which is obviously I'm not, he has done many uh, great work and many scholars and many things have been achieved from uh, this uh, institute. Uh, he's only been around 150 years approximately. So in Islam has been in these other countries been around for much longer. The scholarly work that is there has been much longer as well. But why have we not been kind of introduced to these? Because their way of thinking is not exactly the same manhaj of, you could say, the Dilbundi scholars. Mm. Uh, a lot of them are quite relaxed with the with the beard, etc. Whereas the Dilbundis are very strict with the beard. If you your beard is not one fist, that's it. It's all over. You're not. You're on the fringes of Jahannam. <laughs> you understand? Oh. So it, look who's uh, talking. Look who's, who's talking. talking. <laughs> yeah. So th th this is how it goes. So is there. Because they're certain, they don't want you to be introduced to certain ways of different uh, scholarly thinking, different 
and they just want to kind of I'm not saying all of them, but some of them want to want to keep you in one track, one track of mind, unfortunately. So that's the way I see it. Do you think this line of thought is sustainable? I mean, if they continue on in this uh, this path, obviously, not saying that we are any great people or something, but I'm sure there are many others like us who have been estranged from this work of uh, Tablir or from Deoband itself because of stuff like this. If they continue on in this path that it's only us who are the saved sect or whatever it is they want to uh, relate that as, do you think they have a future in the next generation or after that? Do you think they'll exist in any uh, any form? No, they, they will carry on. They will carry on because, to be honest, in terms of in, in UK, they've been the most successful in the madrasas and in establishing Darulums. But in the terms of... Uh, the wider picture, the, the fitness are, are too many. In UK, we have a, a big division between the Deobandi and the Barelvis. Uh, mm-hmm. And even, you can say, the Salafi brothers just kind of stick to themselves now. Uh, in the beginning, it was just uh, like some kind of tic-tac war happening, but that's kind of died down. But there's many challenges. We have big drug, drug, uh, drugs problems. We have all sorts of issues here. So... Uh, I, I can remember, recall one of the Barovi scholars, he was saying, unfortunately I don't even like to use these terminology, but just because I'm trying to give an example. And he was saying in one of his talks uh, that, you know, we're, we're listening to this scholar and that's, that scholar, like Mufti Menk or one Deobundi scholar, Tariq, Monotariq Jamil, you know, you, you, these people are on misguidance. How, you, how can you even listen to these people? Yeah. So the fact that they've come to such a level of hatred, not just them, it could be within all the three schools of the fraternity I'm talking about here, uh, that you'd rather your son become a drug dealer than listen to or uh, get involved or become a Salafi or Deobandi or Burlavi or whatever. So the, the, the goal should be Islam. Uh, and uh, if there's doing the fundamentals, then what's the problem? I don't see a problem. So, yeah, so they're going to see the bigger picture. Otherwise, it's just going to end up in uh, this kind of tribalist type of wars. That's what's going to happen. Absolutely. And speaking of tribalism, would you say that one of the problems with the Muslim world today is the sort of idea that Islam is a kind of tribe? What do I mean by that is that a lot of people are still sold on this idea that you have to, as you mentioned, have a beard that's fist length. You have to always be wearing a jubba. Uh, you have to be wearing a topi all the time. You have to look a certain way. And even people who look nothing like that like they will, they might be clean shaven themselves, but they'll say, no, that guy can't be an alim because he's clean shaven. But you're clean shaven too. Yeah, but, yeah, but I'm not an alim. An, an alim should be an example for the rest of us to follow. So they would rather have a tribal image of Islam instead of encouraging people to read further into these issues. Like why exactly was the beard? Why did it come to be how it is now? Like why do people see it as a sunnah? Why did the imams of the past and the imams of other madhahib such as imam shafi and you know the maliki madhab why do they not place it on that pedestal do you think that people have been sold this tribal image of islam and look some things are they will create a sort of tribal sense like we don't drink alcohol so if you've got enough people in one community who are abstaining from alcohol abstaining from pork and they kind of bunch together that is sort of tribal but that doesn't mean that now we all dress the same way or we're into the same um interests and hobbies so how can we even counteract this tribal image of Islam that people have been sold? I think the, the way is by listening to scholars from all diff- people who studied everywhere. You understand? But unfortunately, we have scholars who've just studied in one, uh, like a Darulum, maybe the Deobandi Darulum or could be any of the Darulum. So you've just got one track mind. You understand? So if you've got a scholar who studied throughout the Islamic world, and that's what traditionally would happen. They would go, Imam Bukhari, Imam Abu Hanifa, they had hundreds of thousands of teachers, and they would travel the Islamic world to seek uh, knowledge from whoever it may be, as long as they can benefit. So, unfortunately, we've just taken the one-sided uh, knowledge from one, one area, and we've not broadened our minds up. Uh, so, any person who's traveled the Islamic world, a scholar, and you would see the difference between him and someone who's just studied in one one region and or in one place, one Islamic university. That's one thing. And and there's like I was saying, there's many things. Uh, many of the scholars 
like you said, in the Maliki, in the Shafi, uh, etc. They're more lenient on the on the beard as well. And there's many things like in the Quran. Uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, Doctor Yasser Qadi, who's a scholar mm. himself, and he gave a good. Uh, so someone said, "Who are you to talk?" They might, you know, I'm not have high Islamic credentials to speak uh, on these topics, but I'll just parrot fashion. But in, in terms of in the Quran, there's nothing. Allah's never stipulated a length. <laughs> if it was so mm. important, yeah, Allah would say, "All of you, all men, grow." It doesn't even say grow a beard. <laughs> yeah, but we find yeah. from the hadith to the effect that lengthen the beard and trim the mustache. Yeah. So mm. how much did the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi stipulate a length? If it was that clear cut in Islam, he would have said in the hadith, grow one fist. But the, 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 it's in open to interpretation now. You understand? Yeah. And you've got to know, Sheikh Luhan in color. Uh, I don't mm. know if you've heard of him. He's, he's an yeah, Indian, yeah. Jordanian. He's based in Jordan. He's a scholar. Mm. And uh, he was saying, I read his fatwa because my, my myself, my beard is like, I, I may have Malaysian genes in me or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's very thin. Uh, mm. and if you've come across any Malaysian, even scholars, their beards are very short. And, and when I had a, a very long beard, it was very mm. untidy, very untidy. Mashallah, you've got a beautiful beard, you know, nice, thick. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it, it was very uh, untidy. Uh, it's long. And I can remember one of my non-Muslim friends, he goes, bro, you need a shave, man. <laughs> That's what he's told me. Uh, <clears throat> and, I, and, and, and obviously, you, you're brainwashing to a certain way. You have to grow it. Da, da, da. Uh, and when I came across his uh, fatwa on, on, on the lehya, on the beard, and uh, and I was just mesmerized. I was like, whoa, you know, this is something that kind of what I was kind of looking for. I didn't actually go searching for it. I just came across it because I do, like I said, I follow a lot of these scholars from before, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, Sheikh Muhammad mm. Kala, um, Imam Zaid Shakir, and many other kind of scholars. And he, and I read his fatwa, and he was just saying that there's no, uh, the, the, the hadith when it says, grow your beard, the, the, the Prophet, uh, he never mentioned it. So grow it till where? Till your chest? To your knees, mm. to your ankles, to where? <laughs> well, yeah, even though I've seen someone who had it right, right towards his belly button, look very ugly. But some yeah. people have it till the chest, and it suits them because, mashallah, they look very. They have a very uh, good genetic uh, of beards, and it, and it suits them. So whatever. Anyway, so you find people from different parts of the world. They have a few strands on their hair, on on the chin. Mm. Sorry, hairs, and for them to, if they are a big person, for them to grow one fist. And it looked very ugly. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in his wisdom, he knows Islam is global. You know, he's going to be in China, he's going to be in Chile, he's going to be in uh, all parts of the world. Yeah, And you can't uh, put one thing on everybody, blanket everybody on one thing. So it just depends and Allah is beautiful and he likes beauty. So the same way with this, uh, you know, there's many brothers I see that... that Bushy beards they have and, and, and it's, they've not trimmed it, they're not neaten it because of that one fist rule. And all they need to do is neat it a bit, and uh, I think it will become uh, much better. But anyway, so I came across this. So this is just one example I'm giving to you. So there's many things out there. Unfortunately, we've blanketed ourselves that it has to be this way. And if you don't see this guy with like one fist beard, and like this sheikh who passed away recently in Syria, Sheikh Nuruddin Ittar, I think his name was the Muhaddis yes. of Syria. Mm. You look at Sheikh Ramadan al-Bouti and even the Yemeni scholars, Sheikh Habib Amar and uh, many others, they, they have short bit. What are they? Are they going to Jahannam? <laughs> mm. So they, they, this is this is something else. Uh, so Allah, you know, give us true understanding. You know, this is uh, unfortunate. This is our narrow-mindedness in a way. I mean, and it's interesting that Islam is such a an all-encompassing re uh, religion, and some of the people who will give you this backlash because you trim your beard they will acknowledge that Islam is all-encompassing and then they will also reduce Islam to just the, the size of your beard or whether your wife wears a niqab and stuff like that which is, you know, it, it's absurd to say the least but anyway, let's come back to yourself, Sheikh you are a khutib uh, someone who gives lectures on a Friday how did you, in a place like Leicester become a khutib with a beard like that and not wearing a thobe? Because I myself, I might get blacklisted even more for this. It's not like I care. I'm also a khatib, but there's no way that I go doing lectures in Jum'ah 
with my hair tied up as it is today or with my you know wearing a shirt as I have today I have to go wearing a thobe and you know my topi and all that kind of stuff because that's just how Botswana is right now so how did you get away with it is my question uh, to be honest when I do do, do the khutbas I do wear a jubba out of uh, respect reverence uh, as a as an imam <laughs> so I do wear a topi and, and, and a jubba when I do do the khutbah so uh, yeah it's but even if I didn't there, there wouldn't be a problem uh, but the, the the brothers who do invite me now and then to do the khutbah they're, they're Sri Lankan brothers and they're moderate uh, Salafi inclined brothers uh, you can say so I, it wouldn't happen in the Deobandi Institute just put it this way <laughs> so yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's the main reason and the other reason is they want that's another debate as well can you have the Jumma Khutbah in another language apart from Arabic? So mm. this is a big dis- discussion if you look into it. If, in, if, if anything, the Hanafi fiqh is the most lenient in saying that you can. So, uh, uh, but that's another discussion for the scholars out there to, to discuss. But for my um, research, uh, it's as long as it's got some uh, Arabic in there, uh, it, it would be permissible as well. And... Um, so that that was the the reason as well. They wanted someone who can uh, deliver the Juma Khutbah in, in in predominantly in English. Absolutely. And in your work as a a khatib, what are some of the issues you speak about? And you work a lot with the youth. What are some of the prevalent problems you find arising in the Muslim youth of today or youth in general? So do you factor this into your Juma Khutbahs, your lectures on a Friday, or do you just do the usual how to make wudu? No. So. Uh, Basically, um, when they do invite me, it's usually, obviously now we've had the lockdown, so it's been a while, but it's usually they call me every once in every four weeks. I think they have four different imams or khatibs, and they, uh, uh, so they roll it over like that. But when I do, it's, it's usually a topic that's something that needs addressing, or there might be a, an issue that's happening at the world at the time, some political issue, which I'll address as well. Um, so there's many op- many things out there. There's... Uh, the youth, the youth face uh, could be from drugs. It could be from uh, social media issues. It could be um, uh, many um, contemporary issues. I'd say uh, I would kind of address these kind of issues. Mashallah, that's excellent. And to also touch on this aspect of your professional life. You are also someone who is very passionate about fitness. You mentioned boxing. Before we went live, you also showed me your gym equipment. So you've also spoken in the past on other programs about how amongst the Muslim community, or maybe it's just the Asian Muslim community, South Asian Muslim community, there seems to be a a disdain for physical fitness. Not just, I mean, going to the gyms where maybe there's music playing. So, you know, you can understand that argument even if you don't agree with it. But... You know, people will just say that, no, you know, you have a right to eat, you should enjoy the bounties of Allah. You know, I actually, before the lockdown happened in Botswana, I started um, heavily going into a ketogenic diet. And I'm sure you know what that is, being a personal trainer and all that kind of stuff. And I just so happened to be going in Jamaat, one of the last few Jamaats that went out before the lockdown. It was like three days, wasn't anything major. And I was actively avoiding carbs and sugar and people were actually making fun of me for that and not just you know taking a mic as in a joke or something but they you know genuinely like saying how long do you think this will last do you think it'll have any impact blah blah blah. it has had an impact in my life but why do you think there's a disdain for being fit not just exercising but also in eating consciously eating healthy eating foods that are good for you why is there a disdain for this in the muslim community or is it just something that we've been blinded by living in our own communities I think it's, uh, the awareness of this has not been uh, fully implemented within us um, because Allah says eat the halal and tayyib, tayyib. So we do the halal bit, but we don't do the tayyib bit. Mm. So what's the good, you know, if you look at our food diet, it's uh, especially the Asian diet, it's conducive for the environment in India, uh, probably in Africa, I don't know, but definitely not in the UK. Um so it's very oily, um, and there's, we, we don't look at uh, ma- many other things as well. Uh, how to have a balanced, good, nutritious diet as well, and 
and if you look at the the sunnah of the Prophet um, he, he, his eating habits as well, they ate generally good food. Uh, and obviously he used to fast, we used to know Monday, Thursdays, uh, three days every month. So this intimate fasting was taking place as well. Uh, and they want, he never, he wasn't, uh, you could say, he was like a semi-vegetarian as well. Mm. And we mm. eat a lot of meat. We eat a lot of meat, uh, especially uh, in UK, I don't know. Obviously you probably eat it more uh, in Africa. Yeah, probably. Um, probably. So yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of meat being consumed, and especially red meat. Mm. And if a lot of red meat is consumed, it's very hard for your body to digest. And if you're not looking after your your own body, because in the days prior, obviously Sahaba times, they had a tougher life. You know, everything was harder, tougher. Uh, but now we're living in a place where everything we want fast, fast food, everything's fast, all our foods processed, all the takeaway foods, processed food, uh, they're very unhealthy food, um, and what will happen is you're not doing no exercise, you're just eating and eating, and before you know it, you're just going to turn into some kind of a big fat lod, <laughs> that's what's going to happen, yeah. and I yeah. can remember, uh, you know, uh, when I was wrong, I, I, I gave the example in the... Um, in the podcast with Mufti Late, mm-hmm. uh, this morning I was saying that our condition is that we, uh, sakte, bag sakte. Oh. we can't even oh. fight and we can't even run. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> so, no. so th- this is this is our condition. So we should look. And if you look at the Sahaba, you know many of the the Ghazwas, the the battles they had, they were in the fifties. Mm. And for mm-hmm. them to be in some kind of condition, you know, they they, they must have looked after themselves to a level. Uh, so, I'm not saying. Um, definitely your Iman should be much stronger first but at the same time Allah loves the believer who is stronger than the one who is weak so you know look after yourself you know uh, do some exercise uh, and I've always been uh, keen uh, go, uh, uh, keen on gym uh, when I was quite young so that kept me you know uh, kept me going uh, so you know whatever drives your passion you know be it football or whatever just to keep yourself your heart pumping you feel healthy uh, and it's good to look after your body because there's an imana iman from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So yeah, this is definitely something that awareness should be raised within in our Muslim communities as well. Absolutely. And so if someone comes to you for health advice, or if they want to take you on as a personal trainer, how do you usually approach that? Do you have a hyper-personalized plan for this person? Or do you have some general guidelines which you can give to every Tom, Dick and Harry that comes your way and perhaps even our viewers and listeners right now? Yeah, first and foremost, uh, you got to look at what you're eating. You are what you eat, as they say, the famous saying. And so if you're eating mainly junk, fizzy drinks, processed foods, you need to eradicate that. You know, give yourself a treat once in a week probably, and even that to a certain level. So if you're eating like a donut every day, you're going to end up looking like a donut. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's going to be the reality. So you have to take out all the, most of this... Uh, process kind of uh, bad foods so your diet out so slowly slowly after sorting your diet out take it the next step do some exercise uh, I, I personally advise whatever you fancy you may be doing do some of that if you not into no exercise just walk I wouldn't even say jog in the beginning <laughs> just start to walk mm. you, if you're going to, to your workplace walk if it's say it's a mile walk to your workplace so just implement good habits and reduce uh, sorry, replace things that you are doing with, with better habits. Uh, so imagine you were drinking loads of fizzy drinks before. All right, even even me, myself, I have a very sweet tooth. So I replace the fizzy drink with a dilute drink, you know, minimum dilute, uh, more natural stuff, and have have that. So if you've got a sweet tooth, uh, you know, replace it with other things like fruits and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, that's the first thing. Everybody's got different goals, different uh, things. So for a beginner someone who's never trained or you know just want to become more healthy these are the basic kind of advices i would give to someone absolutely and if i may take the liberty since we are here and okay i've been cheating the whole of this week because i just decided to take a break but i do a ketogenic diet um okay first of all what's your opinion on keto second of all how would you recommend on bulking up with keto i know that sounds like a rocket science problem because you're not having any carbs whatsoever so, um, anyway, how do you approach it? 
I think for, for me personally, keto diet is not everybody's cup of tea. Mm. Uh, yeah. If you if you do want to lose, I don't know what your goal was. What was your goal for doing? Well, actually, you know, I I didn't have a weight goal when I started keto. I just I binged watched uh, Dr. Eric Berg on YouTube, and basically I got a, a scare of my life. I'm like, it's not about me looking a certain way or having the six pack or whatever. It's about living a life. An active life, basically, and eating clean, so to speak, because there was all that research about carbs and how they're bad for you, blah, 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 blah. So I didn't have a weight goal. But what did happen is that I dropped, in terms of my pants, I dropped two sizes. So I used to be, I think, 34 and 36, but now I can even wear 32 with no issues whatsoever. And that was not my goal at all. I just wanted to live a life that was conscious and more healthy and eat, have a mindful attitude with what I eat. And yeah, that was what it was initially. And now that I have gotten into the whole rhythm with keto and I usually I eat once a day because I usually don't feel hungry, you know, to eat more than that. And I do my usual exercising, whether it's my, I follow some six pack routine. It's starting to show, but that's not my goal. Never really was. And occasionally I do weightlifting and stuff like that. So it's in light of the weightlifting that I've kind of been told to eat more than once a day, although I could still do that while being in keto. So that's basically me. Okay, so uh, in terms of if anybody out there who wants to lose weight, uh, keto is a very good way because if you cut out the carbs, boom, you're going to start losing weight. But the only thing for me, uh, it's it's not sustainable. Uh, and especially if you want to bulk up because to get the extra amount of calories in, you'd have to increase your protein to a ha much higher amount. And protein, the main sources of protein are chicken, fish. Uh, these are the two main uh, sources of it. Um, and you're going to get bored of it afterwards. So it's it's hard on your on your palate afterwards. Mm. So mm. that's that's my own uh, I, uh, my own personal view. But it just depends on people's goals. Some people they're fine with it. You know, they 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 took out the carbs. They're okay. Me personally, uh, like if I weight trained before. If I don't have some carbs, I, I, I don't feel energetic. So um, uh, that's for most people who do weights, actually. So you need some kind of carbs, especially if you want to bulk up as well. Uh, that, that's that. But then there's other people who, when they eat carbs, they found that they bloat up a lot, etc., etc. But you gotta, everybody's body is different, and you got to basically experiment with your body. Um, for me personally, I, I don't think it's just. I've known people who have done that. They have lost a lot of weight. People who wanted to lose weight, and they have lost a lot of weight in the initial stages. But then, it's like I said, it's not sustainable mm. because you want your roti and your rice afterwards. You know, you don't feel saturated. Saturated. If you want, to, uh, uh, you're just still hungry all the time. Um, so that that's my personal opinion. Okay, that's cool. I mean, I have stuff like that every once in a while. This whole week, I've been cheating because. Why not? And I've been traveling a lot. So that's one thing about keto is that not a lot of restaurants and not a lot of your relatives will understand what the hell keto is. So they are going to force feed you that rice and that bread and that roti and all those, you know, all those delicious junk foods or comfort foods, whatever you want to call them. Anyway, uh, brother Ismail Shafi, we've been going on almost for one hour now. Thank you so much for coming on to this show. Are there any final words you wish to impart on our viewers and listeners, whether they are Muslim, non-Muslim, tabligi, anti-tabligi, deobandi, salafi, whatever. What are your final words? Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, if you want to add one, two more questions, no, not a problem. I, I don't mind increasing it by uh, another 10, 15 minutes. That's not a problem. It's going, the, the flow is going good. Yeah, <laughs> Sometimes yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I used to present in Ramadan radio uh, for the last couple of years. We have a radio station in Ramadan. Oh, yeah. And some of the... Uh, people we interview uh, it's like taking blood out of a stone you know and <laughs> there's others that it just flows and flows and you think whoa where's an hour gone you understand so sure, yeah sure. so it's been good uh, yeah you can you can pose another question if you want to ask me another question okay. okay well okay since you mentioned your um youtube channel i believe i found it i i was searching stuff online and then i did come across your youtube channel but i forgot what it was called i think your most recent video was an interview with ali dawa was it and yeah, yeah. yeah actually, that that that's my the YouTube channel. I don't really promote. It's just basically I done interviews on the Ramadan radio. So that interview uh -huh. with Ali Dawa was done on Ramadan radio, 
and their their system of recording i just kind of posted it onto the youtube channel uh to be honest i've not really uh, promoted the youtube channel uh but yeah i've done a lot of interviews on ramadan radio which we have here locally um every year in ramadan so yeah so that's what it is so ali dawa yeah that was a good interview with, with ali dawa Mashallah. i didn't i didn't really check it out but yeah definitely something so um where can we find your youtube channel like what's it called and where can we find you in general if someone wanted after listening this podcast they want to maybe message you or something maybe they want you for their own podcast because that's how i found you or something See, along that facebook's line. facebook's the best way like how you contacted me yeah, uh, you yeah. can find me on Facebook. It's my Shafi. You can put my name down, obviously, after this. Yeah, uh, yeah. and they can contact me via Facebook if they ever wanted to get in contact with me. Uh, and I think my YouTube channel is uh, is my Shafi as well, uh, as I can remember. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a while. I've not really, I don't, I've not really promoted it to be honest. All right. Well, it, it is what it is. But anyway. Uh, brother Ismail Shukran, thank you very much for coming on to our show. As small as it is, you—I don't know if you—you definitely heard of Botswana before. I, there are some people who, yeah, who've never heard of it. Although that is improving. I mean, I remember as a child, whenever I'd go to wherever it was at the airport, and you know, they look at your passport and like Botswana, where's that? Is that even a real country and all that kind of stuff? So Alhamdulillah, you're not from that crop of people. But yeah, Jazakallah Khairan. So you're somewhere there now, yeah? I take it. I am in yeah, I am in Botswana right now. So yeah, that is where this podcast is based, where it's grown. Although I did uh interesting fact, I have a degree in English law um from the UK. I did graduate this year, Alhamdulillah, so it wasn't all doom and gloom for me. But yeah, Alhamdulillah. Anyway, I was saying before you got cut off. Were there any final words you wanted to impart on our viewers and our listeners, whether they are Muslim, non-Muslim, tabligi, anti-tabligi, Deobandi, Salafi, Barelvi, whatever they are? Do you, I know that's a broad category, but what are your final words to them? Final well, words is uh, for those non-Muslim uh, followers you may have or listening, uh, with an open heart, you know, research um, the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and. You know, you'd see this man in in a period of 23 years, what he achieved uh, is something uh, miraculous. That's one uh, advice I would give to the non-Muslim uh, follow uh, your listenership, and to the Muslim ones, I would say, you know, keep the doors of Jannah open for everyone. You know, look at look at the goodness of everyone, look at the evil within yourselves, mm. uh, and um, have an open mind and an open heart. Uh, and you'll find that Islam is vast, it's an ocean, and don't just make it into some kind of a, uh, what's the word, inclusive club, only yeah, you can yeah. enter it, you know, uh, and inshallah, uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide us all and keep us uh, steadfast on this thing, inshallah. I mean, I mean, I'm curious, by the way, when you were actively not participating in Tabligh, did anyone ever blackmail you with this statement that Molana Ilyas made the dua that whoever does this work and then falls out I make the dua that he never is able to have tranquility in his life because I've genuinely heard that being said to other people I don't know if you faced it as well oh that's the first time I've heard that actually I've never heard that so you must somehow have some super super <laughs> to <believe you> <laughs> yeah uh, no first time I've come across that um, in, in you know, uh, if you sorry, I might go on for another five minutes. But go on, go on. Yeah. We, we've had we've had many reverts, many reverts uh, who now they've. You may have heard of Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad. Oh yeah, uh, oh, yeah. as well. Uh, there's many other famous people like Yusuf Chambers, who's a personal friend of mine. Um, oh mashallah. There's many people out there who, in the initial stages when they become Muslim, especially in the 70s and the 80s, it was going jamaat. And you, you will increase your knowledge. And a lot of them went into Tabligh. And after spending their 40 days or four months or whatever they'd done, then they branched out into their other fields they went into. Uh, and uh, and they all said it was just like a stepping stone for us. You know, Tabligh was there, mashallah, it was good. We learned the fundamentals, the basics. And they just branched out to other stuff afterwards. So, you know, it's there. No, no doubt. Uh, other fields you might go in, you won't have that probably the same spirituality effect 
because obviously you're constantly in the masjid, you're constantly doing this. But in terms of the better good you might be doing for the for the community or for the whole, then that, that that's a different that's a, that's that's a different thing altogether. So if the, if anybody does were to say that to me, uh, you know, I'd say Subhanallah. Well, who are you to tell uh, to say? What was the statement again? The first time I heard this. Well, well, basically, apparently, allegedly, Malana Ilyas, the founder of Tabligh, made this dua, this supplication to Allah that, Oh Allah, whoever does this work and then subsequently falls out, like yourself, may they never live a life of tranquility. In other words, let them be in constant fear of something or constant depression. There's, as we say in Urdu, Bechani, like you're not at peace, you're not tranquil. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I could guarantee that Mu'an Elias would not make a dua like this. If this man came to take the Ummah to Jannah, why would he <laughs> make a badwa? Uh, uh, you know. So, firstly, whoever said this, say, you know, show me the authentication. Mm. And if he, even if he did say this, at the end of the day, every scholar has made mistakes. Uh, mm. No doubt, even Mu'an Elias could have made mistakes. So, only the prophets are infallible. Uh, so, you know, the, it is what it is. And. Uh, you know, each to their own and each to their own. <laughs> Absolutely. And you are going to be cancelled so heavily for that statement. And so am I. Interesting fact. We might end on this. I had on my podcast, maybe you've seen clips of it. Sheikh Ismail Kamdar. He might even be watching this right now. Um, he's an alim, a scholar from South Africa. He grew up like yourself and myself in a Deobandi environment, went through a journey, became Salafi, became Jihadi, and then came back as in now he follows the Hanafi madhab but he's not like super Deobandi or something. And in my episode with him, he had a segment where he said, basically he said he was talking about cultural integration and that was the way of the Sahaba, anhum, and it was the way of Muslims and that's why Islam spread so far and wide. At the end of that, he said that there is no religious basis for wearing a topi all the time. It is cultural, according to him. And even in Western culture, in the UK, once upon a time, it was culture to wear the bowler hat all the time. If you didn't do that, you were not respectable. You were not honorable. And, you know, it was always the English gentleman who took off his hat for a lady and all, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I posted that on a Muslim group and I was told, I was privately messaged like, brother, your posts are sensitive. They are very controversial. And just for saying, just for someone else coming on my show and saying that you don't have to wear the topi 24-7. And, yeah, it was an interesting experience. And I showed that to Sheikh Ismail. He's like, this is what you get for rocking the boat. So we'll take it in stride. We know where we are. We know what's going to happen when we put this online. It is what it is. We're not going to be emotionally blackmailed into doing things we don't want to do at this stage. I mean, we're both grown men. And since you did confirm that you are actually 41. So Alhamdulillah, we are past the whole stage of being emotionally blackmailed into basically going into a box that we don't want to go into. Once again, Brother Ismail Shafi, you don't want to be called Ustad, but I'll call you Ustad. Ustad Ismail Shafi, Jazakullah Khairan, may Allah reward you for coming on to our podcast. You're more than welcome once this pandemic ends, inshallah, once the lockdown is, is lifted, to come to Botswana in the flesh so we can show you around, inshallah. And yeah, I'm sure you will feel at home. Actually, when I went to Zerus, uh, they were going to arrange for me to give a talk in one of their masjids. But it wow, just wow. happened that a Jamaat came there from India. Oh, is it? Uh, I said, yeah. So I said, oh, no, no, obviously they should be given the preference, the sacrifice. Uh -huh. yeah, so yeah, yeah that, that, <laughs> so that's what that's what happened. But yeah, inshallah, we, it'll be good. It'll be good to come and see you guys uh, and see what's possible about as well, inshallah. Yeah, inshallah. I mean, I'm surprised you still get gigs at Masajid, international Masajid, with the way you have conducted yourself i'm not saying that you were bad or anything i'm saying that with the ideas that you hold in your head people actually still invite you to these uh quote-unquote deobandi masajid or tablighi masajid i mean like sheikh ismail kamdar got cancelled some of his asatida his teachers don't even make salam to him anymore because of the stuff that he said so i'm surprised that you still kept your head intact yeah you you will always find open-minded uh, scholars and if you just keep it general like some of the stuff speaking it I wouldn't obviously now it's just going to come out on wider platform just to make people understand but in terms of giving a general talk on something you wouldn't really touch upon controversial uh, topics mm -hmm. uh, so that, that, that's that's what it was I, and the 
topic I was going to touch upon is why did the Prophet uh, why was he chosen to be a prophet in from Saudi Arabia well current Saudi Arabia why was mm. he not a prophet chosen to be in some other country so I was going to talk about uh, that was the topic I was going to talk about that time but uh, yeah inshallah if inshallah. Allah wills then we will meet inshallah in flesh inshallah definitely so yeah it's been a wild ride of an episode we went through so many things so many controversial topics people will come for my head now um guys just take it easy we have so much that we can agree on uh we have gone through almost an hour's worth of an episode and brother ismail shafi went through so many things that he talked about that as muslims we can agree on so there's no point in clinging on to these infights and these village wars and all these things that we've kind of imported from a generation that is Sorry to say, on its last legs. But anyway, once again, from Mahalapir Botswana, to the viewers, to the listeners, and to our esteemed guest from Leicester, Brother Ismail Shafi, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Peace out, everyone. Well, you reached the end. Well done. I guess I'll give you a little bit of a prize by reminding you to like, share and subscribe to our relevant channels. Follow us on all our social media platforms. If you're using Apple Podcasts, do leave us a five-star rating. And if you think we've earned it, we'd appreciate a one-time donation on Ko-fi or a longer pledge on Patreon. Until next time, stay blessed. Assalamu alaikum.